0: human race some kind of love and ride I'll be sliding
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Dr. John Mark Stoudy with me again. Dr. Stoudy uh, has over 20 years of diverse mining and exploration experience in precious and base metals, and uh, he's earned his master's degree uh, from Harvard University in 1989 and a Ph.D. in Economic Geology from the University of Arizona. We have a more extensive a bio for Dr. John Mark Stoudy on our website and you're certainly free and welcome and encouraged to go there and uh, and read the full bio of Dr. Stoudy but for the sake of, of brevity and time and uh, I think we'll just get on to today's discussion I've asked Dr. Stoudy to come back and talk to to you about uh, about economics about mining economics more precisely uh, and more more precisely about precious metals economics, the economics of mining gold and silver primarily. That's what we're interested in. Back in March uh, 22nd, I believe it was, Dr. Stoudy was here to talk to us about exploration concepts, terms and and, and ideas and things that investors should be aware of at the early stages uh, when companies like his, uh, Riverside Resources, uh, starts to look for minerals and starts to do the, the very early exploration work and as those projects develop, we want to be aware of the uh, of, of the risks, and we also want to try to understand as best we can how the picture, the puzzle, the um, uh, the puzzle is coming together, so we can get a better idea of what the economics might be, whether a project will work or not. Uh, we're always making these decisions as the exploration projects uh, progress, uh, and uh, and so it's an ongoing issue. But at the very earliest stages, when Doctor. Stouty goes out and, and stakes some ground and, and uh, acquires some properties, uh, in the back of his mind is the potential for uh, for something to become economic. Uh, so today we want to talk to him about what are those issues, what makes a, a mine economically viable. And you know, it's not an easy question to answer because every project is different, every project is has its own nuances and, um, you know, what holds true in one part of the world in one particular project with respect to grade can be totally untrue in another. Well, in any event, with all of that, let me shut up for a little bit and let Dr. Stoudy, who does have a degree in economic geology, talk to us about that. Welcome, uh, Dr. Stoudy, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times once again. Thank you so much, Jay. It's wonderful to be
3: here and your show is so
2: insightful and helpful. Well, thank you uh, for that uh, kind remark. We do certainly uh, receive a lot of great uh, feedback from our listeners, and in no small part it's because of people like you. It's not about me. It's the guests that I have that are that are excellent. And, and most often, of course, we're talking about political economics. We're not talking as much about the practical aspects of mining, but that is very important as well. We need uh, investors who go out and buy mining stocks to understand the risks inherent in what they're buying we want them also to see the upside potential in what they're buying a lot of the regulatory requirements require companies to tell investors only what can go wrong we want them to also see what the potential is and certainly in a bull market like we have now in gold and silver the upside is very uh, is very substantial for projects that become uh, that become economically viable but let's start out just by putting that into perspective if we could dr study uh, John Mark, could you tell us what is the probability uh, from the very earliest stages of any given property uh, to become an economically viable mine? It's very small, isn't it? it
3: it's, it's very, very small, and it's through a number of steps. Often people like to say it's one in a hundred, but in fact, it's much higher, uh, prob- much higher risk, lower probability than that. In fact, it's uh, more like one in a thousand chances that something's actually going to become a mine. And, of course, some of the key things would be location. And when we go to look at places, some locations are easier to see that there will be a mine, perhaps. If you look at places that already have a mine, then it's easy to be the second or third. It's very difficult to be the first mine in an area or a location. And so if you're in a country or a region that has very few or no mines, perhaps there's very low infrastructure or access, then it takes a very large mine to get things going. It takes a large very rich deposit to be the first, then after that other places can get into into production and can be progressed along the way. Another key factor and when you ever look at probabilities is how much work has been done in the previously in the area. If there's more work done then you can build on that. So I think infrastructure, therefore location, country risk, and previous work would be three key things that when you try to guess what the probabilities are, not right off the bat, helps you to tell if it's one in a hundred, or one in a thousand, or one in ten thousand of a chance.
2: Right. So those are some of the things that you would be looking at uh, on behalf of your of the company that you head up. That's Riverside Resources. You would be looking at location. Uh, you know whether there's a lot of work done in the past, and with respect also to political risk. You are Riverside Resources is primarily focused in Mexico. It's got a project in southwestern United States in Arizona. Uh, I guess you have really focused then on areas that are located close to where other other projects, or where there's been a lot of work done in the past. Is that right?
3: That's exactly right. In fact, I've had the opportunity to work in over 30 countries, and we chose those countries that have the 1 in a 100 chance of a project perhaps becoming a mine. That's still an optimistic number, and it may be, somewhat lower, but we definitely go to places that there are already people producing because we can leverage off that past work. Mm -hmm. Another key factor is when you go to a place that other people are doing the work, they Mm -hmm. already have the infrastructure, you also have the skilled personnel, you also have the legal system that allows for it. Mm -hmm. If you have to go and build the legal system, it can take a decade or two. On top of everything else, you have this huge political risk. On the other hand, If there are already people that have set up the legal system, for example, in the United States or Chile, Peru or Mexico, then we we have less doubt that if you find something, you'll be able to put it into a mine. Mm -hmm. If you go to a new country or to a a, a remote country that we don't know about, then the government may actually want to take a larger percent and not realize that the real value for a government is the jobs that the mine creates, the infrastructure that's built, and the long-term stability that an operation can do. Instead, they, look, they assume that there'll be lots of profits and want to take a big piece of it. And that becomes very taxing and very difficult for a project. So the probability of those projects in those new jurisdictions is much lower. And as investors or people that are looking at the economics, it's much harder to really see how those are going to become mines. And they actually don't get sold for as much. So Riverside, my company, we choose to work in places that we know – A discovery could be bought very quickly where a mine will be worth a lot of money and where it can be done as fast as possible to get it from a discovery into production because the other part of the risk is the the equity markets. And as you go longer periods of time, when there are corrections in the equity markets, it makes it more difficult to sustain as a
2: company. Mm -hmm. For sure, and to raise capital to put uh, projects into production as well. Let's talk a little bit about grade, John Mark. You know, grade is one thing, you know, that's what, people can sort of well they see an ounce per ton for example when you're talking about gold or five or ten ounces per ton or twenty ounces per ton when you're talking about silver pretty high grade uh, but let's, let's just talk about some of the variables because uh, an old friend of mine used to like to say over and over again I sort of got tired of hearing it but it's absolutely true not all ounces are created equally when they're in the ground uh, could you just comment on grade perhaps
3: Exactly. So grade really fits into what's the value of the material, and so it kind of comes down to profit margin, and grade translates into how rich is something. Generally, to make something economic, you need to be able to get it out at half the cost of what you could sell it for, and then you have enough margin to make things work. So grade directly, we often say grade is king. Grade directly applies to the economics, and we find that Discoveries or projects that are higher grade, therefore much more uh, profitable to do. They become in the lowest quartile as uh, production, and usually their operating costs are lower, and therefore they become quite valuable. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, grade is, is so vital, and so we go to more remote locations or difficult locations. We have to have much higher grade. Also, it's about the extractability, though. If things are easily extracted, and perhaps in, in some terms we have it as oxide, in other words, it can be easily leached, then we don't have to put so much capital cost in. If we have such a rich material, it can actually affect and can accept having high capital cost. It can carry those costs because the grade is high. So we always look for grade, and it's the thing that really drives the project.
2: That is uh, most certainly true, John Mark, but at the same time, I'm looking at companies now with uh, gold at $1,400 plus. Uh, there's one, Allied Nevada, for example, that's on our list. It uh, has a very low grade. I think overall maybe uh, when you consider silver and gold together, it's around a gram per ton, something like that, and yet they're, they're quite profitable. How is it that some mining projects like that, uh, like their Highcroft mine in Nevada, can be very profitable Uh, whereas others are not.
3: Exactly right, and one is location. Nevada is a great place to work. There are many skilled people. There's a very good mining law. It's a stable place to invest, and we actually have a very large mine. As we get scale and something being large, and people don't mind investing, they don't feel so much risk investing in Nevada, you can do. So you can mine a large bulk tonnage where they can make it concentrate, or in this case, they can do it as a leach. So it's very low a cost in order to move the material and be able to extract the gold. So it really comes down to margin. If you go to other places, for example, Russia or Mongolia, the same project would not be at all economic, It would need to be five times richer or maybe even more or some other factor much richer in order to make it work because the remoteness, the cost of power, the cost of other inputs to be able to make the operation work. So the reason Highcroft works so well at that lower grade, in fact, is its location and also the mineralogy, being able to leach it, also starting off early stage. When you can early start off with some high grade that pays back your capital cost, then as long as your operating costs are making it, you can run. So the key thing is to have not too large of a capital cost at the beginning, Once you've paid back all your your construction costs and everything, then you can run a low grade for a long period of time. Many of the Nevada operations have not had to cover more capital costs. They've been able to just operate and run at a lower grade, but just managing their operating costs, and that's a wonderful place to be in. It makes for a very interesting operation and a good investment.
2: Well, certainly what you're saying there about generating cash flow early on, this is a company that's produced about 100,000 ounces this last year, uh, expected to scale up when they build a plant that can handle the sulfides, expecting to, to ramp up to about 550,000 ounces a year, and then 26 or 27 million ounces of silver per year, taking the silver as a credit uh, against the gold production. I think they're producing, they're projecting in the lower 300s, uh... three hundred dollars per ounce so that's to me very very interesting that you can uh... now make so much money in a small i mean in a low-grade project like that uh... john mark also you might uh, we might go back to exploration just a moment uh, because when you have these large-scale near-surface open pit deposits you can go in uh... and relatively quickly you can develop a deposit can you not you have riverside has for example uh, a, uh, a porphyry deposit, a porphyry, uh, uh, gold, copper deposit in Arizona that needs a lot more work done before we know if it's economic or not, but it's certainly that's, that kind of project, I guess, you can go out and drill up uh, fairly quickly, unlike maybe a very, very high-grade deposit that's deep under the earth that costs an awful lot to drill up. Maybe you could just comment on that a little bit.
3: That's very important, and so, yes. One of the key things about economics and one of the things that I studied as part of my Ph.D. was that the deposit styles, certain styles of deposits are large, more or less the similar type of grade and can be evaluated with very few holes, and if they're near the surface, it's very cheap. Other deposits are narrow veins that are high-grade but somewhat erratic and deep under the earth. It's very expensive and hard to hit those, and and it takes a lot of money to get down there, and you don't have a lot of confidence, so you have to drill between places and spend a lot of money to delineate it. So as we come closer to the surface and we go open pit, it's going to have – faster being able to bring it into production. Also, we can begin to mine at some of the the relatively higher grades to test out how it's working before we have to put in large amounts of capital to get it out. Mm -hmm. If we go deep, we have to put all the money up front. It takes a lot of risk and we're not positive it's gonna work. We don't know if we have everything designed the right way. So we spend a lot more money up front. And for the investor, that means that it's gonna be more money you have cash flow to be able to get it out. So yes, Riverside specifically looks for shallower deposits and we actually look for open pits. When we find deeper deposits or we find veins that will be mined underground, we use a joint venture model where we partner with someone else who has the skill and the access to capital to do that and we maintain a, a percentage of the project and a royalty and uh, work on that project with certain business terms, but we ourselves don't do the drilling and the work on those. Instead, we let someone else come in who has deeper pockets and has the uh, the, the strength and, and wherewithal to continue because it's going to take a lot longer and be much more uh, difficult in order to get it all delineated. And to my, in that respect, it's actually higher risk. So as you asked about the probability, there are many of these deeper occurrences, but they're going to take much longer and in truth, they have a lower probability of ever seeing production. We have many of those deeper locations that are, are known and historically out there. But if we look at what generally gets built the soonest, the open pits are often able to
2: be built more quickly and uh, with less capital up front. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly what we're saying, we're providing some general rules here today, of course, because uh, I, if I heard you correctly what you're saying, most often the surface deposits can be drilled out uh, obviously it can be drilled out less expensively because you don't have to put deep drill holes down more often than not you have continuity of mineralization or at least it's easy to sort of statistically determine uh, uh, what your grades are and how much uh, how much ore or how much um, uh, of a resource you have early on uh, but and yet there are there are exceptions to that as well, and I know you're you're more familiar than I am with it. But certainly, there are some projects that I've seen recently in Quebec where there has been a nuggeting effect, uh, even on the surface. So that uh, when they do bulk mineable, when they when they bulk mine a, a sample, they get uh, sometimes fifty percent higher grades than they do when they when they put the drill hole down.
3: That's exactly right. And so in fact, imagine having that being 500 meters deep or something, Jay, and you've gone down to mine it and you get down and you can't actually find where the high grade is and it makes it more difficult. That's, that's exactly the point. So in the old days, we have people that have come and mined at the surface and these diggings that we find out uh, in different parts of the United States or throughout the world, often people have already mined the high grades that were at the surface. And nowadays we have to continue and follow those around And now we bulk mine around it at a lower grade because it used to have that high-grade surface, but people found it. So if we now, since that's all been mined out, we have to go deeper, and therefore uh, we don't have those high grades at the surface so much unless it's out under cover or something that's a a bit of a surprise. But uh, if we go deep, we can't mine that lower grade, that bulk tonnage. We have to focus it in. One of the deposit types that we can mine bulk tonnage underground is is this thing that's called a porphyry, and in copper and in molybdenum and in gold, we can mine these, and often we do it in a certain methodology that's called a block cave, so we actually – it's like a giant funnel where you go down deep and you – you blast the rock, and you actually pull the rock out of the bottom and then hoist it up and you you pull it down underneath and then but it takes a lot of very special geometry and it takes a lot of capital and it 's really for the big companies mm-hmm. so if you 're investing in a in a junior company or whatever and they say they 're going to do that, then you know they 're going to probably need to find a partner because they 're talking not millions but billions of dollars and for a junior company that 's valued at uh, at millions of dollars, then, if you think of how how is that company ever going to be able to access billions of dollars of capital in order to bring it into production, so you 'll find the majors becoming partners in those projects because they 're just too big and uh, too expensive for the smaller companies that uh, often maybe uh, sponsors of your show would be uh, would be invested in
2: sure, and of course you uh, I know Sugarloaf Peak is one project. Uh a prospect, project, I guess you could call it on a project yet, but it's certainly a very interesting property with a historical resource of gold uh, on that property. That is one that uh, that could be mined, bulk mineable, if, if the grades are there, if, they, if there's sufficient uh, material there. Uh, I guess one of the areas that, one of the variables that we maybe haven't talked about and might be valuable for our listeners would be uh, structure or size. You mentioned geometry with respect to block caving, block cave mining. Uh, maybe you could just talk a little bit about uh, mining widths uh, or the idea of the size of structures, how that comes into the how that feeds into the economic picture. So yeah,
3: two of the factors would be uh, dilution, and the other would be strip ratio. or or to waste. In other words when you do the mining you gotta take away the material you need but you have to move other material to get it out of the way. So if the material is very rich, in other words as we talked about grade, if it's high grade then we can mine that and either uh, leave a lot of waste or or mine a lot of waste. As it comes to lower grade then we have to actually take it in a larger amount and can't uh, have so much waste. So the structure Often it's the fault or or how the body is, is shaped is quite vital for what are the economics. So we do do a lot of geology and we use lots of geophysics to try to work out what the structural fabric is, the structural characteristics of the deposit. So many times you'll visit a website or look at a presentation and they'll have all these lines on the map and those lines are often the feeder zones or the the conduits through which the fluids have gone and have deposited the gold. So we definitely, as geologists, focus on structures because we're trying to find the highest grade. We're trying to find the richest material, and that'll be the place that we can start and expand from. So, yeah, we definitely put a lot of emphasis on structure, structural geology. And secondly, when we do the mining, then we have to know what it is for the slope or for the mining technique. Because if we go across a fault, often it might make more water or it may make an easier for a landslide or for a slip or something like that. And so for safety... We have to know the structures of the rock, so when we do the mining, engineering, and planning, we can take that into account, the geotechnical project and planning for how are we going to extract it in a safe way. So we actually use the structural geology for that, so it's both for the grade, but also later on for the engineering.
2: Uh, John, Mark, maybe one more item that we should discuss a little bit is uh, environmental issues. Could you just maybe briefly go over some of the more important issues that people should be aware of when they start to follow junior mining companies?
3: I think the first thing is, is, is vegetation and water. If we're in drier environments where we don't have a lot of water, then we, we generally don't have as many problems. But we go into highly vegetated areas with a lot of topography and a lot of water, we're definitely going to have a lot of trouble because how are we going to control that? A mine site doesn't want water to leave its site; needs to control it. We can't actually—we don't—we can't let any dirt, dirty water. It's not really anything other than usually dirt or ground up rock that's going to be leaving a site. But we, we as an environmentally sensitive community and people, don't want to see dirty water or, or worse, some some type of contaminated water leaving a site. So. First off, we'd be looking at topography, water, and vegetation. Hmm. The other part is is populations. If we go into more populated areas then we have to be much more careful as well because we don't want to impact the the people around us as much, both dust and and noise and other things. So often we'll find mines are in more distant areas. Mines actually take up very small amounts of area. If you looked at all the mines of the world, it would be less than the parking lots of just Los Angeles in terms of disturbance and things. So it's very small amounts of actual disturbance for the whole planet. But uh, we have this vision that mines have a big footprint. In fact, parking lots have a much larger footprint and more oil goes off of parking lots than escapes from mines. So it's actually much more uh, environmentally uh, um, destructive or impactful, shall we say, just what we do from our automobiles and our own driving around than we actually do from the mines themselves. But uh, the, the days of the past when uh, people would build a mine and wouldn't control what was leaving it uh, are largely gone. We try to make sure that they're gone in any of the public companies or things like that that are getting funded... By, uh, by public money, you definitely have to follow the regulations and rules, and, and we definitely embrace the environmental uh, criteria, uh, not just of where we're working, but at a broader scope of uh, what uh, society and, and policies can accept, and we try to find uh, worldwide standards and try to match those as best we can.
2: Sure, absolutely. Uh, we want to be good corporate citizens uh, uh, and not to pass on costs to future generations, uh, that's for sure. Uh, I don't know is there anything else John Mark you think might we should talk about or just mention uh, with respect to mining economics I think we we did touch there's a little bit there's three other
3: things that we do want to talk about quickly one is is we, we mentioned about the gold and silver as byproducts and co-products. Mm-hmm. right now when we look at elements, for example, gold, if we're able to actually get the copper with it or maybe if we get the silver with it, mm-hmm. then it becomes much more valuable. And also it allows for, for all kinds of interesting things for financings or for capital that, in fact, we could sell one element that we're not so interested in to someone who would be highly interested in that and get that money up front in order to build a mine. So I think one thing that people really need to look or can look at is it byproducts, and then also deal structure. Really, uh, when these companies have these projects, understanding if they're royalties, if there are other partnerships, and what the characteristics are. Riverside Resources, for example, we put up on our website about our deals and our our agreements. In fact, because we do joint ventures, mm-hmm. so the project. We own a minority percentage in the project and we can retain, we might dilute down to a royalty or different things like that. So as people invest in companies, they need to appreciate the the other factors that are in there. And lastly is really understanding capital costs. How much money is it gonna take to build a mine? So when we look at these different companies that are in very remote locations that are talking about things, it's gonna take a lot of capital costs to get there. The operating costs may be very high as well. So when we look at an interceptor discovery holes, don't just look at grade, but look at the, uh, the location and, and then think of what the capital costs are going to be, any underlying agreements that may be there, any governmental agreements, and what are the co-products and by-products at the present location, because those will all be key factors in the economics.
2: And certainly metallurgy, as you discussed earlier, too, and the uh, capital costs, uh, and the costs of uh, recoveries are another issue, of course. There's many, many issues, but I think we've hit on most of them, John Mark, today, at least superficially. And, and this is for people uh, that may not be that, that familiar with mining, just to keep in mind some of the things they should be looking at as they're looking at press releases that are put out on a regular basis. And uh, I, I believe, John Mark, as somebody who's followed Riverside Resources, that you have given a great deal of thought To all of these factors and probably a lot more of them that we don't have time to mention here today, uh, when you went out and selected properties to vend into Riverside and then, uh, and then to get joint venture partners to come in because you are really looking to maximize shareholder wealth for Riverside, uh, and you have chosen this, this model, this, uh, as we've discussed several times on this show in the past the joint venture model which uh, allows you to go out and find you know use your intellectual capital go out and find good uh, geologically uh, promising properties but also with all these other aspects that we just talked about that uh, that give a property a better chance a better probability of becoming a viable mine one day and uh, riverside um, You guys are doing doing quite well, I guess. You know, I know I know that we put you in our newsletter when you were selling at uh, fifty cents or something like that. You're well over a dollar now, so uh, it's uh, it's maybe not the most exciting model for some people because you have so many things going on and you are not focused on. You're not a one trick pony. You're not looking at one property that might hit big and send your stock to the moon with a very low probability. But you're looking at a number of properties, all of which have some some probability of success, and you add them all up together chances are of one or more of them uh, hitting uh, becoming successful and making Riverside into something very valuable uh, well the probabilities would seem to be greater than with that model and, and I might also add again uh, the most important one of the most important aspects is shareholder dilution. you talked about mining dilution a minute ago but shareholder dilution is probably the most important aspect when I look at junior mining companies that always have to go back and raise capital, tremendous amounts of capital, put expensive drill holes down to the ground, uh, you are avoiding that. And uh, and I want our listeners to pay attention to Riverside Resources and other uh, project generator companies that we've talked about uh, on this show from time to time. John Mark, I want to thank you very much for spending your time. You're talking to us from Switzerland. You're probably worn out, need to get to bed get some rest. Uh, You're very kind to take this time to talk to us. I want to thank you very much and hope we can have you on again sometime in the near future. Thank you very much, and uh, we look forward to being on the show. Folks, uh, thank you, John Mark, and and, uh, we will have you on again, I'm I'm hopeful, very soon. Don't go away, folks, because coming up next, we've got Doug Casey. Uh, He's going to talk to us about Cafe Jate Argentina, the project he has going on there, uh, and the reasons for it. Doug will also give you uh, his view of the world and why you should be looking uh, to diversify your assets and not only diversify your assets but diversify places in which to hold those assets. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Doug Casey.
4: Great Panther Silver is a profitable primary silver producer trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol GPR. GPR operates two 100% owned mines in Mexico, has a solid track record of increasing production, and continues to add resources and reserves. GPR has developed an organic growth strategy that will see production increase by more than 65% over the next two years. Great Panther Silver is also generating excitement at its new discovery in Guanajuato and expanding its drill program. Look for GPR on the TSX.
0: Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by.
1: Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD.
4: Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business.
0: A human.
5: I'll I'll just give you my view on uh, on the way the world is today. I I think one of the interesting things that's going on, of course, is uh, the the upsets in the Arab world. And so far, this has all just been in Arabic-speaking countries. And it's very interesting how it started with uh, one guy in Morocco, very much in the style of those Buddhist monks in Vietnam in the 60s lit himself on fire and that happened in Morocco and then just spread like wildfire and the question is where it's going to end and of course there's something going on in <coughs> Syria now uh, and the only place that you haven't really heard anything about yet is Saudi Arabia and I think that's going to be the big one and it's absolutely inevitable to me that something goes on in Saudi Arabia unfortunately I've never been to Saudi Arabia I had an opportunity kind of or should have had an opportunity to go to Saudi Arabia because one of my classmates in college was uh, a guy named Turkey Faisal, who's one of these 5,000 princes, but he's the prince that became the uh, head of the Saudi CIA. And he invited uh, a bunch of my friends to visit uh, Saudi with him as an all-expense-paid junket uh, paid by the the Saudi uh, government. But I wasn't invited, I guess. Uh, you don't want to invite a skeleton to the feast. It was basically what was going on. But I'll bet uh, Saudi is going to be the big one. But one of the interesting things that Gaddafi uh, uh, said uh, was that, um, you know, you people want trouble. We'll give you trouble. You're going to have millions of immigrants from the Arab world now and they're all going to go to Europe. So the demographic problems that Europe has with an alien population coming visit and staying there and not integrating into the European community, I think that's going to become a big thing over the next few years. And you're not going to be able to keep out this wave of people. And I think what's going to happen uh, as a result of that is there's going to be a lot more trouble in Europe. because. It's one thing if you have a few thousand people living in your community, and maybe they don't live here, all right, so that's not a big problem. But when you, got, when you got a few million, or many million, then you got a potentially big problem that's going to go on. And I think what's going to happen is there's a lot of Europeans that are going to say, why in hell am I, am I living in Europe? Uh, it's extremely high tax all over Europe. It's extremely high regulation. It's crowded. Uh, The the whole continent's been living off of capital, which they've accumulated over hundreds of years. They've been living off of capital for some time. And I think Europe is going to have a lot of trouble. Uh, And not just with the collapse of the EU, which I think is going to happen, and the collapse of the euro, which is certain to fall apart, in my opinion. So I think what's going to happen is there are going to be hundreds of thousands of Europeans generally well-to-do Europeans, who have the capital and the ability and the sophistication to go elsewhere, that are going to go elsewhere. And I think uh, a lot of these people, and we're talking about millions of potential people, but certainly hundreds of thousands are going to do the same calculation that I did. Well, where do you want to live? No, forget about the United States. Uh, Forget about Europe. Forget about Central Asia and the Middle East. That's off the forget about Africa. Uh, the Orient's very nice, but you know you're never going to be part of uh, the society there. You can be a, a tourist, and it's excellent. Uh, but uh, so I think South America is going to have its day in the sun. One reason South America is going to have its day in the sun is because this is this whole continent, which is having a boom right now because of agricultural prices. I think there's a good reason to believe agricultural prices are going to stay high for much longer than they normally would stay high. I think they could stay high for quite some time. So you're going to get a lot of wealthy Europeans coming down here. And this is one of the arguments why, for instance, Uruguay, not Uruguay, but Punta del Este, because Montevideo is just a dump. Uh, I think uh, we'll go to Punta, but then they're going to find Punta is just a deserted beach town. And like uh, a lot of Argentines that say they live in uh, Punta, but they like to really live in Argentina because this place is much more interesting, much more fun than Uruguay, which is really just a backward province of Argentina. So I'm kind of bullish about, about this continent uh, and this country in particular. So. Um, I think that that's kind of a macroeconomic thing that I think is going to happen to do with leading from the uh, upset in uh, the Arab world at this time. So that's just something to keep in the back of your mind. And that kind of leads me to a second thing. I don't know how many of you guys uh, get our publications, because I I know uh, a lot of you guys subscribe to uh, Dave Eifert's publication and Porter's publications. But um, I've um, ever since I read a science fiction book by uh, Neil Stevenson, who's really something of a genius, uh, and he wrote a book called Diamond Age. And in that book, uh, set about uh, 50 years in the future from now, roughly, uh, maybe a little less, because he wrote that book uh, in the 90s. And uh, what he uh, kind of... Uh, set in, in, in that uh, book, Diamond Age, was that nation states had already largely fallen apart. Not entirely, but pretty much. And people like to organize themselves somehow. And he uh, put forward the uh, proposition that people actually uh, were going to, the next stage, you know, after people did tribes, uh, and then they did kingdoms, and then starting in the 1600s, uh, the nation state of the way of organization arose. And now the nation state is on its last legs because everybody can see that none of these damn governments serve a useful purpose. They're really just vehicles for theft. I mean, that's really what that boiled down to. And, even if, uh, they're not even, and since they're all bankrupt at this point, they're not even such good, good vehicles for theft anymore. Uh, so that, and with the rise of the internet, which is the most important thing to happen certainly since uh, the Gutenberg invented movable type, um, that uh, with the internet and with uh, jet airplane travel and so forth, that uh, now you'll find that your your countrymen isn't the guy that shares a piece of government identification issued by the accidental geographical area where you happen to live. But uh, you're able to identify people all over the world uh, that uh, share whatever is important to you. Now, for some people, that could just be business. And uh, those are the people that you really care about. And that could be your file. File coming from the Greek word philos, you know, like, love, you get along, you share things that are important to you, and there are hundreds of different, thousands of different things that are very important to um, individual people, you name it. It could be religion, it could be politics, it could be business, it could be a hobby, it could be sport, it could be anything, and there are millions of these thing. So I think what's going to happen now over the next generation is that increasingly people are going to see that, uh, well, take the case of the United States for instance. Uh, you all know that half of the people that live in the U.S. don't pay any taxes. Now I don't approve of taxes. I don't think anybody ought to pay taxes. But the fact is, is that the U.S. government has this huge Amount of income that it sucks uh, out of the society, and only half of the people pay it, and the other half are basically on the receiving end. So from a political point of view, the people that are on the receiving end are not going to give up the things that they're getting, and the people that are on the paying end are getting less and less happy about that. You know? it's like, well, screw this. I'm out of here. And, um... I think that because of the internet and jet travel and uh, the fact that that technology has spread rapidly all over the world, so that you can come to some place that is in the middle of nowhere, which is northwest Argentina, and you can have all the benefits of almost New York City, quite frankly, uh, but without the disadvantages. So that um, there's going to be a lot more of this type of thing, and um, of course the fact that all these governments are bankrupt at this point, and they're going to, you know, the situation is going to get worse. So I think that uh, you all might be on the leading edge of this trend, where birds of a feather will tend to flock together. So. I think that uh, this is on the very leading edge of that, uh, of that trend. So that's kind of the big overview of the way I see things coming down. Um, and then we've got to look at the markets. And um, uh, look at the markets. And another observation I'd make here is in all over the world, uh, there's nothing anywhere that I can see that's cheap. I mean, yeah, there are periodically things that are cheap. Like who was I talking? I was talking when I was talking to at dinner with Fitzroy last night, and he pointed out that ah, because of the mass exodus of uh, Europeans from Morocco, where which is kind of a, a exotic vacation second residence uh, destination for a lot of uh, well-to-do Europeans, but they feel very uncomfortable now. So that you know. Uh, Maybe, maybe, Morocco, uh, there's going to be a a lot of semi-abandoned, really nice property and cheap. So there's anomalies like that that will come up. And uh, like uh, six months ago, we did an interview in uh, uh, my weekly Conversations with Casey thing, where I didn't uh, do the interview, but a friend of mine uh, was interviewed who made uh, his fortune buying rent-controlled apartments in New York in the 70s and he got them very cheap, uh, they were rent controlled, they were uneconomic, beautiful buildings falling apart, paid the people that were there to move out, turned them into condominiums, he made a fortune. And he's thinking, well, I'm going to do that in Cairo, Egypt. And because in downtown Cairo, or on the river, there are all these beautiful Bella Polk, uh buildings, well, like the ones in the Recoleta, with high ceilings, and they're very beautiful. And he's buying them very cheap and paying people to leave and renovating them so the rich Egyptians, which would like to live downtown Cairo on the river. So there's opportunities like that that, that uh, come up. But I'm not talking about opportunities like that, uh, which, which you'd have to call, I think, speculations. And you've got to remember, uh, you've got to define the word speculation properly. And, uh, uh, I think this is important to do. Savings, which is putting aside, producing more than you consume, and setting aside the difference. That's savings. Well, this leads me, I don't want to go off on a tangent. I can go off on a 100 different tangents here, which is not proper in a short speech. But one of the big problems we've got is is that, the productive people in every society in the world that produce more than they consume and save the difference. That's what productive people do. But what do they save the difference in? They save it in the local currency unit. Mostly dollars everywhere in the world, but also all the local currency units. And all these governments all over the world, all of them, are creating trillions of new currency units, and it's just going to turn into a tidal wave at some point, and destroy all these currencies. And this is very problematical, because it's going to destroy the savings of the productive people. Let's set them aside. Now, I don't know where that's going to end, but it's, but it's going to be ugly. So saving, certainly in terms of currency units, is increasingly a mistake. And then people, say, oh, I'll invest. I'll do what Warren Buffett did. I'll allocate. Investing is allocating money into an area that produces more wealth. It's different than savings but I think investing is going to get much harder in the years to come. Why? You can see this all over the world. All these governments everywhere are trying to solve the problem by propping up uh, a collapsing old system that's been built upon debt and distortions cranked in by regulation. So I think you're going to see much more regulation in the future and higher taxes for sure in the future. And even if that doesn't happen, which it will, there's going to be vast inflation and it becomes very, very hard to run a business when you've got inflation going not just 5 or 10 percent, that's inconvenient, but 20 or 30 or maybe the kind of inflation that they've had in Brazil where they've destroyed several currencies since World War II or Argentina, which I don't know who's destroyed the most, Argentina or Brazil. Uh, But it's very hard to run a business under those circumstances. I'm asking myself, what's Microsoft going to do with that $40 billion of American currency units when it really turns into a tidal wave? What are they going to do with those 40 billion units? I don't know. I don't know if they know. Or they've even thought about that possibility. Or the other corporations that have lots of cash or the, all these banks that have lots of cash that they aren't lending out. The point I'm making here is saving is going to be very problematical. Investing is going to be very problematical even for guys like Warren Buffett who, thank God, I think is a dinosaur in many ways. I really, I really do. And you know, his method, the Graham Dodd method, is very sound. But I think we're going into a time when it's going to be not quite the way it used to be. So. Then what do you do? Well, you look at speculation, which is speculation. is not gambling. It's not trading. What it is is it's allocating capital to take advantage of politically-caused distortions in the marketplace. And that's exactly what my friend in New York with the rent control departments, and today in Cairo with the rent-controlled department, or if he did something in Morocco, uh, would be another example of speculation or agricultural land. I mean, you could, you know, I don't know what the, what's going to happen in Bolivia, but, you know, I, I'd be willing to place a bet that Bolivia, which is not a real country, is going to break into at least two separate countries, because they're radically different in every way, the west from the east of Bolivia. So that's a speculation, uh, I, where I bet on the eastern part of Bolivia. and. Uh, There's all kinds of things like that. But getting back to what I said earlier, there's nothing in the world, in general, that's cheap today. Nothing is cheap, frankly, anywhere. Uh, There's no real estate, these little anomalies uh, that's cheap. There's no stocks that are really, well, there are some. But in general, stock markets are overpriced, including the US stock market. Buy any conventional. Conventional, it, it may double from here just because all those dollars will maybe they'll pile in to buy stocks because at least that's buying real assets, overpriced or not, it's better than zero, which you'll get with currency. So um, I think that uh, my bet is this: is that right now uh, we're in the eye of the storm, the eye of the hurricane, which the leading edge of the hurricane hit starting in 2007, 2008, early 2009. And they created all these trillions of extra currency units. It's papered things over for the time being. It's chilled. A lot of people are thinking, conventional people are thinking, ah, this is just like one of those other recessions in the past. Well, anything can happen, of course, but I don't think so. I think that this is going to be very serious. And whether we come out the other end of the hurricane, which is going to be much worse, than it was in 2008. Whether it lasts six months, a year, 18 months—I don't know—but it's going to end very badly. And at the same time, uh, you know, you've got uh, you know, the military problems, which you know they've got their own military problems everywhere in the world. If you look at places, uh, it's it's like a, it's like the 1930s, actually. So. Uh, it's going to be uh, tough going, and that's why, uh, actually, I kind of like being here in the middle of nowhere, which is really very pleasant, and it's going to get more pleasant. So that's kind of my big economic overview. You can't own bonds. It's dangerous to own stocks. Commodities aren't cheap anymore. There's no cheap real estate anymore. Although, but once again, one of the nice things about these countries in South America always destroying their currencies is there's no debt down here. So at least the prices on real estate are cash prices, which means that they may be high, but at least they're real, because they're not propped up by borrowed money. There's no bubble from that point of view. Although there are going to be many bubbles that are going to be created in the years to come by these trillions of currency units. So I I can't give you a... uh, uh, a tout right now, but I, I will. I'll tell you what I think. Like gold and silver, uh, are not cheap anymore. Not cheap. So you know, I, I can't say buy gold and buy silver because this isn't five or ten years ago. But um, still, I think you ought to own a bunch of it, just because at least it's the only financial asset that's not simultaneously somebody else's liability. But I'll tell you, I think what an interesting speculation is going to be, it seems to me to be inevitable, uh, is for the last 40 years, these junior mining stocks, exploration stocks, small producers and big producers, very radical fluctuations. I mean, 1,000% moves up 95% moves down. This has happened in five or six cycles over the last uh, 40 years. And I think it's a good bet, although they're not cheap now, that there's going to be a bubble and a mania that's going to be spectacular that's going to be ignited in these small resource stocks of all types. Oils, oils too. So I think that's a really good speculation, where even from present levels, it's not unrealistic that you could look at 10 or with the right stocks, 20, 50 to 1 on your money. I think it could happen, even from here. So that's kind of the big picture, the way I see it. And um, I got five minutes left, so I don't know. Anybody have any uh, reactions or, or thoughts? any you talk about that? Because those junior mining stocks
3: are affected by credit, available credit. Like I, my mistake, in 2008 was I think it was when the credit. Yeah, but all of a sudden there wasn't
5: credit when the prices went down and I always worry about that happening again back yeah. like in the stuff. It very well might they're hot potatoes because you got to remember out of the I don't know, it's hard to say but let's say there's 2,000 maybe 2,500 in the US, UK, Australia and mostly Canada is the epicenter for these things in all ways um, most of them are just garbage I mean, some of them are Really, just a couple guys with the mule wandering around looking for the treasure of Sierra Madre, and then you can take steps up. So you've got to choose. I think they'll probably all move. They'll probably all move, because they always do move. But but why why buy complete junk, which, unless there's a bubble, they'll go bankrupt and turn into some other kind of company if the shell even survives? It's better to get something where there's you know, good people running it, that know what they're doing, and they and you can find these companies, it takes some and work. And I
3: feel like we did, but then the hedge funds get in there and start destroying the stock. You know? Oh,
5: don't worry about the hedge funds. Mm-hmm. That, that's, uh, during the 1920s, uh, hedge funds were called capital pools, basically. It was the same thing. And then, by the time things bottom out, nobody wants to hear that stock markets exist, Nobody would dream of giving somebody a 20% cut of any profits, plus 2% per year, generally. So this is a, an aberration. They're all going to go away, and a lot of those billionaires will keep their money somehow. These are smart guys, but don't worry about that, and don't worry about conspiracy theories with you know uh, uh, three or more, eight or less. I don't know how many. These banks, they say, are always smacking gold down. I mean, how stupid are these people that uh, over a 10-year super bull market are still trying to be short in a bull market? This is all ridiculous. It's nonsense. So don't read everything. You, don't, don't believe everything you read on the internet. Because <laughs> these traders talk to each other. And it's hard for me to believe that when two traders get together for a beer, they're talking about how much they lost. Finding the bull market for the last ten years and how stupid each of them are—it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So, uh, you mentioned
4: uh, this being you know, an example of maybe the lead edge of, of a place that where people are, are feathered together. Is there some other similar kind of place somewhere else in the world that would be close to this? Well,
5: you know, some years ago there was something that was formed in the United States called the Free State Movement. And um, they were thinking Wyoming and New Hampshire. But uh, first of all, it's in the wrong place, which is the United States. And um, the trend in the United States has been very negative at at an accelerating rate. And it's going to get more negative because these bureaucracies, their, their first law of existence is to grow bigger and feed themselves and become more powerful. So, I think it's a mistake to try to do that in the United States, which those guys in the free-state movement have done. Is there any other place like this in the world? I am unaware of it I'm unaware of it. I, you know, I'm sure there is like a few guys that hang out together someplace that would be pleasant, but uh, you know I, I don't want to be someplace where you have to grub for roots and berries and I don't play golf, maybe I will and but Maybe I'm going to play polo again. I hope so, and I want to do that. So no, this place is unique, unique, totally unique, right? to my to my knowledge. But I hope there's several more. and I hope they're all successful. I really do. So when the uh, next big crisis happens and we leave the eye storm, how bad will when? Yeah, you know, generally in 2008, my
4: my thing was. All the good assets got sold off because people need to raise money to pay off the bad assets. So what's going to happen again in 2011, 2012, 2013? When the next thing happens, and how bad it is gold and silver going to get sold off?
5: I don't know. I think there's a better right. chance this will be a panic into gold and silver, led by central banks from countries that have a lot of um, a lot of income. I think that the Chinese, uh, who aren't stupid, I mean, they're quick learners. Uh, they've been buying a lot of gold, they say. And the Russians have been buying gold consistently. The Indians are buying. All these countries that are doing well, they're going to buy more gold. And I think gold's going to be reinstituted as day-to-day money in some form, or something resembling day-to-day money. So yeah, there could be a sell-off, but how do you predict these things? I'm just sorry it's not cheap anymore, gold. But I don't know where else to go. I mean, you can't buy copper, you can't, everything. There's nothing cheap anymore. The other things that are cheap, to my knowledge, are natural gas, and of all the commodities, the cheapest one is actually, I still think, it's cattle. So you can buy cattle here down here, you can buy land here. Uh, It's middle of nowhere and won't be very appealing. Well, you can still buy land for that could be suitable for cattle for, I don't know, say $300, $400 a hectare. I mean, not so much. But then you've got to clear it, and then you got to fence it, and you got to put uh, wells in for the cattle, and then you got to hire competent people to take care of them. But if you do all that, and you'll get your money back, because now the land is worth more than you put into it to make it productive. And then every year, you know, all the females have babies. You sell the young males off, and two years later, those females can have babies. And, of course, some are going to die, and some are going to get old, and this and that. But it just keeps compounding. And I think uh, uh, cattle is the cheapest commodity out there right now. And it's true that if people think there are tough times coming, they say, oh, what the traders say, justifiably. uh, People aren't going to be able to afford to eat beef anymore. Better sell cattle. Yeah, that's true, but over the long run, even if they have an explosion in the meantime, China, they're going to be eating more beef and so are the Koreans and all these countries that are on their way up. And in real terms, cattle is still the cheapest thing around. other than natural gas, which I think is a good bet, too, because it's Anomalously cheap, partially because of the, uh, the new technologies that have been developed with uh, shale gas, which is a lot of it, but nothing lasts forever, but this is just a, a thought. Do you ever an opinion on the I don't. Actually, I don't have an opinion. I don't know what rice is trading at now relative to wheat or corn, I just I, I haven't followed it, to be honest with you. So. Now, Doug, you, you talked about the potential or impending collapse of the EU and the Euro and Europe and, and the exodus most of people. but you didn't put a time frame on that, do you have a feel for that is it a year, two years, five years <laughs> decade I think it's, it's going to start now yeah and it's going to be in full swing in, in two to three to five years that's what I thought. Because these major movements take time. I mean, everybody's not gonna, you know, summon a place in play some friends and hop on a jet tomorrow morning. It's a trend that's gonna build momentum. I think so. Because look, if you're a wealthy European, you live in Europe, and of course, with the money laundering laws and all this type of thing uh, that have spread to Europe. <laughs> One of the things that kept Europe Europe's head above water for a long time is black money. I mean, Europeans have been very good about evading taxes wherever they can, but that's harder and harder. I mean, started with the, the German government bribing that guy in Liechtenstein to steal all those things, and then uh, hundreds and hundreds of people were tracked down and prosecuted based upon that theft. And uh, money laundering laws you know, have become bigger and bigger, and people actually think it's a crime now. So that's a big problem for Europe. That's been a major thing that's allowed Europeans to build capital, with black money. And it's gonna get much harder in the future. And Terry's gonna talk a little bit about that. And I'm sorry, because we, partially because we failed to observe the six Ps totally. Uh, G. Taylor and Fitzroy and uh, Clean are only gonna have five minutes, because we didn't know, for sure. But, Everybody's gonna have a few thoughts on this, so
4: those are those are just mine in a nutshell. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
0: Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite with operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by.
4: North Atlantic Resources is a gold exploration company with three projects in Mali, West Africa. With successful drilling programs and new discoveries made this year, we are in an excellent position to advance our premier FT project to development. We have a 43-101 compliant resource of approximately 600,000 ounces of gold with a target to increase to over 1 million ounces. North Atlantic trades under the symbol NAC on the TSX Venture Exchange. Learn more about NAC. Go to our website at www.nac dash TSX dot com the high risk but high reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Peck, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross and Eldius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Rock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO.